week. Uh, but we are going to pick up our study this morning in Proverbs. So if you have Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to jump back into our study together this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we got some extras on that back table there. Um, if you don't have a note sheet, there's literally dozens of them in empty chairs around you. So you should be able to have one so you can follow along here uh, this morning. Just a reminder, though, because it has been a few weeks since we've been in Proverbs. Just wanted to remind you of kind of where we were a few weeks ago. Uh, we looked at the opening seven verses together, and really we looked at why uh, Proverbs is such a necessary book, especially for young people to study. It is a book that really offers you uh, the opportunity to grow in a lot of key areas. Uh, humility, integrity, maturity ability, all these different things that Proverbs really presents to you as a really enticing offer. But at the end of the day, a choice has to be made as to whether or not you genuinely want that. And the way that that decision is made is not so much based on you just uh, saying, yeah, yeah, I, I want all those things. Really what you're saying at the end of the day is you want a person. You want someone. That's why verse 7 reminds us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That the fools are the ones who despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, verse 7 kind of serves as what we would call the gateway to the rest of the book of Proverbs. You have to answer that question before you can truly uh, glean and benefit from what's going to come after this. Do you genuinely want to worship the Lord with your life? Because if you do, then the rest of the book of Proverbs is going to be a tremendous benefit to you. But if really your relationship with the Lord is floundering, really you just don't see it as a priority, then Proverbs is not really going to be a benefit to you. You could say that you want to try to implement these things, but those things are completely empty and useless apart from first a relationship with the Lord. Otherwise, you're just trying to put on makeup over a dead corpse. It's, it's not going to work. And so you need first the life that comes from fearing the Lord and having a relationship with Him. So this morning, as we enter into the rest of the book, and we start in verse 8, this passage that we're going to look at today in verses 8 to 19 uh, has arguably the most relevance, I would say, to you as students. Uh, this might be the most timely of passages that we're going to look at in all of the book of Proverbs. There's several that we're going to look at, but this is one that I think is very unique to all of you in particular. Especially for those of you who are graduating, right? This is something that is going to have a tremendous impact on you in this next season of your life. So uh, set the stage enough for that. So let's, let's jump into it together. Uh, we're going to read it. I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into our time of study this morning. So go ahead and stand and let's read from Proverbs chapter 1. Starting in verse 8 and we'll read down to verse 19. This is Solomon, and he writes in verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and penance for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. 
Throw in your lot among us and we will have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their path for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. All right, well, let's have a seat and let's pray. Let's ask for God's favor on our time together as we try to unpack this this morning. <clears throat> so, Father, we do come now asking for uh, much wisdom. Uh, this is a book about wisdom and it is something that we want to continue to strive to better understand we understand that, Lord, this first and foremost comes from knowing you. And that is my prayer this morning is that this uh, group, the, the students who fill these seats here, uh, would genuinely desire to know you, Lord, and to have relationship with you, uh, to know the right way that they should go. Because if, if, if that is the case, and Lord, this, this passage this morning can have a tremendous bearing on the outlook and the course of their lives. So would you please... Uh, bless that as we seek to better understand uh, the principles that it sets forth for us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several of you know uh, our, one of our camp speakers that we've had for several years at Ascend Camp, a guy by the name of Pastor Rick Holland. And Pastor Rick, uh, years ago, told a story about one of his college courses that he was in. Um, it was a, a course, I believe, on uh, human psychology. And uh, the teacher wanted to do an interesting experiment. Uh, a teacher had noticed that uh, there was a tendency for students to arrive late to class, something I'm sure none of you know anything about, but uh, for students to kind of trickle in far after the time the course uh, had actually started. And so the, the teacher one day decided, you know what, let's do an experiment. For those of you who were here early, who were here on time, we're going to do something. I'm going to, in the middle of the class, just kind of out of nowhere, uh, ask the question, how many of you heard the news that the United States declared war on Russia today? And when I do that, I want all of you to raise your hand, and we want to see who else joins in with you, even though, obviously, that's not a true story. And so they played along with it, and the course you know, went on as time went, and the teacher eventually, as people trickled in and all the late people arrived, asked that very question. How many of you knew that the United States declared war on Russia today? And all those who had been there who were in on the, the joke raised their hand, and guess what? A number of people who came in late raised their hands along with them. Now, the interesting thing is, as the teacher went on with the class and she paused to reflect on this experiment, she kind of pulled a twist on those that were in on the joke. As it turns out, the real experiment was not on the kids who showed up late. Rather, she wanted to show how easy it was for her to use her influence to get them to do something that she wanted them to do. Right? It was not the influence of the students who were putting up their hand to get others to raise their hand. It was the fact that the teacher, just by using her own words, was able to get all these students in the class to lie. 
It goes to show just how convincing peer pressure can be in our society, uh, especially amongst friends and especially amongst young people. It's important uh, for the subject uh, that we're going to study here this morning and the impact that it has on students today. I mean, if you were to think about it, where you're at in this stage of life, you are in one of your most influential uh, and easily uh, moldable stages of life. I know that many of you you have the longing and the desire for friends. I've been around student ministry long enough to know that one of the greatest longings in the heart of a young person is to have friends, is to have peers, to have people who accept them. I think the, the pressure of this has increased over the last decade, especially with the rise of smartphones, social media, all these pages that allow all these opportunities for you to compare and to contrast yourself with other people and to blend in and to be a part of the movements. You're at a stage of life where you're forming uh, a particular identity. You want to be accepted by others. You want to be liked. You want to be popular. You want to do the things that make you blend in with others rather than stand out in ways that you're uncomfortable with. And if it's not specifically the pressure that comes from people, specifically your friends, it's definitely the pressure that comes from our culture to conform. All kinds of ideologies and worldviews that the world wants you to embrace because that's the end thing. That's the, what's called right side of history to be on. That's why Solomon wants to start out this book by reminding you that peer pressure is a very real threat to your pursuit of wisdom. Peer pressure is a very real threat to your pursuit of wisdom. After all, what is wisdom, by the way? It's been a few weeks since we've been here, but anybody remember what is wisdom? Anybody take the time to actually memorize the definition of wisdom that we've been putting out there? Anybody want to give it a shot based on their memory? Wisdom is worshiping God by rightly applying God's truth to real-life situations, right? So how... Think about this for a moment. How might peer pressure be a threat to pursuing wisdom? How do you feel like peer pressure stands in the way of this? Yeah. Well, then there's the people around you uh, causing you to make decisions that aren't using God's truth. Mm -hmm. It goes against what he told you to do. Okay. Yeah, people asking you to do things that are directly contrary to what God's truth would say, right? So they're coming with uh, advice and so-called wisdom that comes from uh, a different source of truth. Uh, we can say this, peer pressure is what we would call the fear of man over the fear of the Lord. It stands in complete contrast to what wisdom is, right? If wisdom, the beginning of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord revering him and worshiping him and having him as the top priority in all things, if, that's, if that is what wisdom is, well, peer pressure has the desire to please man as its highest ambition. Your desire to please other people rather than to please the Lord. And so peer pressure presents many dangers, and our passage seems to point to a couple key ones for our consideration, which is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at three primary pitfalls that come with peer pressure. Three pitfalls of 
peer pressure. So what are these pitfalls? How does uh, peer pressure stand in the way of pursuing biblical wisdom? Well, I think, first of all, we see in verses 8 and 9 that it keeps you away from wise counsel. It keeps you away from wise counsel. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland around your head and penance for your neck. These opening verses, and even if you include verse 10, it kind of presents us with a little bit of a choice. We've already seen that there's a choice between the fear of the Lord uh, and folly, right? Wisdom and folly. But here we see a choice of where you're going to go to seek out uh, earthly wisdom or godly wisdom from earthly sources. Uh, if fools despise wisdom and instruction, then listen to wisdom specifically to your father's instruction. And right away here, again, Solomon presents us with the choice. You can either accept the wisdom and instruction offered by your parents or in verse 10, you can consent to the pressures of sin and folly. Uh, Solomon gives a picture here of parents. Uh, it's kind of interesting here, right? This is how uh, wisdom is referred to throughout this book. It's this idea of a, a father and his, uh, and, and his son, or even a, a son or child and his mother. It's a parental relationship. And so the very first source he points them to here after this fear of the Lord is, listen to your parents. And I know several of you are starting to twitch in your seats this morning. You're like, I, nope, don't like that at all. I don't like where Pastor Scott's going. I'm trying to figure out an excuse so I can go to the bathroom and leave this building right now. But I think it's important for you to see that the choice of folly always comes at the expense of godly wisdom. This is something that Solomon made very clear to his son. Listen. Listen to your parents. Listen to those, in many ways we could say that this even goes beyond just parents, but really listen to those who are in positions of authority who are there to instruct you in the right way. Pastors, teachers, wise leaders, your parents above all. And this is something, unfortunately, for Solomon and his son Rehoboam. This is wisdom he did not adhere to. If you were to go back to 1 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 12, you would see the story of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, again, was Solomon's son. And uh, Solomon, what was the big construction project that happened during Solomon's time? Do you remember? What was being built? The temple. Yeah, the temple was. And so that required a lot of labor. That required a lot of work uh, amongst the people. And after that project was completed, the people came to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, after Solomon had died and said, listen, your father laid a pretty heavy burden on us. Um, if you really want to earn the good graces of the people, it would probably be wise for you to, to back off a little bit and allow for less labor, less projects, uh, and the people will respect you. You'll probably have a long tenure as king and be well thought of by people. He took the matter to the elders of uh, Israel, and Israel said, you know what, yeah, that's, that's actually really uh, wise advice. We think you should adhere to that. But Solomon, or sorry, Rehoboam wanted a second opinion. So who did he go to as his second source of counsel? His friends. He went to the, the young guys that he had grown up with, and he said, hey, what do you guys think I should do? And they said, 
You should disregard the people. In fact, you should be even harsher with them. If you really want them to be good listeners to you, really be subject to you, you need to be even harder on them than your father Solomon was. Guess who he listened to? He he listened to his peers. He listened to his friends. Did it turn out well for him? (laughs) Did not. In fact, the result of this decision, we could say in many ways, is what sent Israel into a divided kingdom and a spiral that it would eventually lead to their uh, time in exile. So kind of a slippery slope that happens as a result of a very poor decision on Rehoboam's part. But it shows how even Solomon's own son forsook his father's counsel. And I can't tell you the number of times that I, as a, as a, as a pastor of students, have kind of been in the same position where I've worked with students and I've worked with their parents, tried to help students to see how the, the wisdom of their parents and what they're asking of them is good and right, or maybe times where students have come and sought counsel from me and I've tried to uh, help them understand what decisions they should make, what hard path they need to go down, even though it's not the one that's maybe the most popular and the one that would not be the most accepted by their friends. And time and time again, I've seen them spurn that counsel Because it's just not the popular choice. And I've seen the damage that it's caused to their lives. Yeah, they may have gotten what they wanted in the moment, but it has not been good for them in the long run. And Solomon makes it very clear here in verse 9. The benefits of listening to the wisdom of those who are wiser, particularly your parents, they come with so many more benefits than outweigh the the. The, or the, the benefits of trying to listen to your friends. He says in verse 9, they are a graceful garland for your head. They are penance for your neck. Compares them to a wreath and to a crown and a garland. Those things were symbols of victory in the ancient world. They were given to those who were prestigious or highly esteemed. And what Solomon is trying to communicate is, in simplistic form, is that it will go well with you if you listen to godly counsel. If you're willing to set aside your pride and set aside your desire to be like other people, then it will generally go really well for you. Uh, Things tend to go well for you when you listen to your parents rather than to live in rebellion against every single one of their commands or every single one of their wishes for you. Unfortunately, for many young people, heeding the wisdom of parents or godly counsel is not cool. It's not favorable. A lot of times it works against their own self-serving interests of what they want for their lives or what they want to hear. It's just not, it's not the thing to do. And when such is the case, young people are willing to sacrifice the benefits of listening to godly counsel in favor of self-serving folly. Which leads then to the second pet fall this morning, which is that peer pressure deceives you with false promises. And I think we have to understand, right, peer pressure doesn't always have to be negative. There are good forms of peer pressure, pressure uh, to help you in the right way. But I think we all know that when we talk about peer pressure, for the most part, we're talking about the kind that is sinful. The kind that does not lead you in the way that you should go. And so what Solomon does here in verses 10 through 14 is he kind of uh, presents you with several of these false promises that come alongside peer pressure. 
in verse 10, you know, he, he says, my son, if sinners entice you, don't consent, right? Don't, don't fall for the deception that they are putting before you. Because they're going to try to do it. And they're going to do so with sweet words that try to entice you. And you might think to yourself as you read through this, you're like, well, this doesn't sound like any of the friends that I have. And I understand that. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But I want you to see the bigger picture of these verses rather than the maybe specific details that uh, are contained in Solomon's time when he's writing this. So look at verse 11 for a moment where you see the false promise that you can have fun with sin, Right? You can have fun with it. He says in verse 11, If the sinner say to you, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. This verse depicts people who are mean just for the sake of personal enjoyment. Let's do things to people just because it's fun. It's fun to get a rouse out of other people, to get a reaction out of them. I'm sure as I say that, you probably know people like that. You've probably seen it, or if you're honest, you might have joined in with these people from time to time. Who like to put others down in the presence of others because it makes you feel good. Now, again, I said this before, you may think that the graphic language of murder in verse 11 is extreme. You're like, whoa, 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 Pastor Scott. Uh, nobody in my class is asking me to lie in wait so that we can kill somebody, which I'm very thankful for. Um, although, if that is actually happening, please, please tell somebody about that, like, right now. Uh, don't, don't delay on that any further. But I'm going to guess that for the majority of you, and I guess for almost every single one of you, none of your friends or none of your peers are asking you to do something like that specifically. But this is where we have to remember that the larger command of Scripture in this idea, of, you know, we think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 where he said, you've heard the command where he says, do not murder, right? But I say to you that anybody who is angry at his brother or sister is guilty of murder. It is more of a hard attitude than it is an actual act. And so when we think about what he's calling for here, the, the heart uh, motivation behind that, it's the idea that you are guilty of these things when you don't value the life of God that he has created. When you are intentionally using your life to the detriment of other people. When you're doing so to bring harm to other people, whether that be physical harm or emotional harm, spiritual harm, mental harm, right? There are all kinds of ways that your words seek to do this, right? If, if that's what your friends and your peers are inviting you into is to be a part of that for the sake of putting other people down, then you're, fall, you're falling for it, student. You're falling for it. It is a false promise that you're going to have fun with it. They're going to enjoy it. And he leads into that in verse 12 where he says, Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pits. Uh, this is the false promise that you can get away with it. <laughs> you can get away with it. This can be kind of a confusing verse, but I like the way that John Kitchen puts it. Listen to what he says. This is the invitation of the sinner. To lash out at anyone and everyone who comes in your path and then cover up all evidence of wrongdoing. 
Beware of the one who promises to you no one ever needs to know. Do you know people like that? I think the worst influences in your life often are the ones who get you to believe that sin can be enjoyed in secret. That no one needs to know about it. That you can do it and there's no harm done. It's a secret. What's done in darkness can just stay there. There's a principle that I learned years ago that I think is really helpful for the Christian life, but it's the principle that time and truth tend to run hand in hand. And what that means is given enough time, the truth will come out. Given enough time, the truth will be exposed by the lights. But even if it doesn't, for some reason, which often it does, we do have the promise of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. That reminds us that no creature is hidden from the sight of God, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Even if you do get away with it, you're not really. Because the Lord knows. The Lord sees. Yeah, the people who you think it matters to most, your peers, they see what you do and you are accepted for it. But what about the person who it matters the most to? And the one that you actually have to answer to one day and give an account to? This is, this is a false promise that you will get away with it. God has got a justice. And no sin is blinded from his eyes. But thirdly, there's the false promise that you will benefit from it. That you'll benefit from it. Verse 13. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Man, we're going to come out really good from this. That somehow we're going to profit, right? He's, he's thinking about here financial gain, right? And again, we're like, this probably doesn't apply in its particular context to murder and to, to taking specifically from this person. But it is the promise, or it is the false promise that is, that people who get you to believe the lie uh, of sin, that it will be self-serving and that it will be self-gratifying. That you're going to feel better. You're going uh, gonna to Feel better because everyone else is doing it. Think how much fun it's going to be. Think how much you're going to enjoy it. You're going to benefit. The problem is this is a type of relationship that is built on what you can get out of it rather than what you're actually giving into it. That's the very nature of what a true friendship is, is what you can actually give for the sake of other people, not what you can take from them. There's no truth-seeking here. There's no benefit for the other person. And that is the basis of godly friendship. This is only taking. And then he, I think, nicely ties it together here in verse 14 where he says, Throw in your lot among us, and we will all have one person. In other words, if you contribute to this, Right? We'll all have something that we can benefit from. But in particular, what's interesting here in this verse is the language. It speaks to an all-embracing attitude of we and us. You're a part of our group. We will all be in this together. Translation, you will be one of us. You will be one of us, one of the guys, one of the girls. 
People might not use that language specifically anymore, but that's what's implied. It's like, hey, if you want to run in our crowd, this is what it's going to take. If you do that, man, you're going to blend in with us well. You're going to be part of the group. I think it speaks to our desire to find acceptance from others no matter what the cost is. You know, it was interesting years ago. You can just see the folly of this, the, the, the slippery slope of, of how peer pressure works, doing things that, you know, are really foolish, really sinful for others, but then just really stupid at the same time, right? You guys remember a few years ago, it's going to sound weird, but do you remember a few years ago there was this thing going around called the Tide Pod Challenge? Does anybody remember that? It was like little Tide Pods you put in the wash. There was like this challenge of like people eating the Tide Pods. There's really stupid ways that people would like manipulate you so that you would do it because it's the fun thing to do. A lot of people were, as you can imagine, actually getting sick and getting hurt from that because guess what? Your body was not made to eat laundry detergent. If you didn't know that, don't try it today. But there was a CBS News article about a guy who was involved in this, a 19-year-old named Mark. And he did it on a dare from one of his friends saying that he knew better than to do it, but he didn't want to risk losing face in front of all of his friends. And so he did it. Something as silly and as stupid as that but it shows how enticing this can be in the longing of our hearts to want to be accepted by other people. The fear of people and their praise and acceptance more than the praise and acceptance of God. So we've seen here how pit, the pitfalls of fear and pressure work, right? It keeps you away from wise counsel. It deceives you of false promises. But thirdly, it leads you down the path of destruction. It does not bring you to life. He gives a final warning in verses 15 and 16. He says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Verse 15 marks the third time in this passage he said, My son. Have you noticed that? He began in verse 8. My son. Verse 10. My son. Verse 15. My son. In other words, don't have this spiritual ADD, right? Listen to me. Stop listening to their voices. Listen to me. Do not walk with them. Do not follow them. He, he uses all this language of, of walking and feet and path. These are words used in the Bible to describe a lifestyle. To call for you to not do what they do. To go where they go. Do not say what they say. Because Solomon has been given spiritual eyes to see and to know their future. He, he understands what this is leading to. If you continue to go down this path that you think is actually going to be life-giving, you're going to be sorely mistaken. And so he looks at the final outcome in verses 17 to 19. And he gives this kind of funny illustration in verse 17. He says, For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. You're like, I don't do bird hunting. I have no idea what this is talking about. And that's okay. There's actually a little bit of uh, some disagreement by commentators as to what exactly this verse is saying. I think what he explains in verse 18 kind of clarifies it a little bit. But he's trying to say, listen, 
it, it's kind of silly to spread out a net, a trap in front of a bird while he's watching it, right? I mean, birds are not the sharpest animals, I get that, but the likelihood of them going into the trap just because they see it being spread and there's food there, uh, you like to think that they're smarter than that. But these men are not smart, are they? These people who lie these traps for other people. Verse 18, these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. These men are actually foolish because they fall into their own trap. Uh, they think that what they're doing for other people to set a trap for them in verse 11, right? That's their whole purpose is like, let's do this for the detriment of other people. And guess what? What they're actually doing is bringing harm and danger upon themselves. The very thing they sought to do in verse 11 is going to come true in verses 18 to 19. They are too foolish to realize that the blood that they pursue is actually their own. The sin that they are pursuing is actually the very trap that they're going to fall into and be consumed by. I don't know how many of you, when it comes to cartoons, remember the old cartoon of the coyote and the roadrunner. How many of you watched that? How many of you still watch that? I actually think that show is genius because how many cartoons could entertain kids for hours that actually didn't have any words? That's how, that's how good those cartoons were. But if you know the concept of the roadrunner and the coyote, Wiley Coyote, what, what is the plot of every single like two to three minute segment of that show? So the coyote is trying to do what? He's trying to catch the roadrunner, right? He's doing everything in his power with every form of dynamite, every source of netting, every source of hole. I don't know how he has all these unlimited resources, but he stops at nothing to get the roadrunner. And every single time, every single time, what happens to the coyote? He's the victim of his own trap. The dynamite meant for the roadrunner, guess what? Blows him up. The very net that he's trying to catch the roadrunner in, he falls into. It's the very concept that Solomon is putting forth here. These people think that they're so smart, so wise in trying to set a trap and to do things to hurt and harm others that the real harm that they're bringing is upon their own life. Student, sin is blinding. The very thing that you think is going to benefit you the thing that you think will bring you praise and pleasure and acceptance will actually just destroy you. I've seen that time and time again. The people who pursue sin, they think that that is what's going to make them happy. It's the very source of death. The point here is clear. Who you surround yourself who you surround yourself with matters because it ultimately has eternal consequences. Verse 19, such are the way of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessor. It does not bring life, it brings death. That is the destruction that peer pressure can and will eventually bring to your life if you allow it to consume you. And so what are the principles that Solomon would want us to walk away from this morning as we look at this passage? First of all, this, 
Do not forsake the wisdom of honoring your parents. Again, I know that some of you are just like, uh, I just, I don't like this right now. And I get that. I was probably in your shoes at one point as well. But it is kind of interesting that verses 8 and 9 are essentially a rephrasing of the fifth commandment. Very same idea that Paul picks up on in Ephesians chapter 6. Where he says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise that it would go well with you and that you would may live long in the land. Isn't this just fascinating? It, it seems so simple, and yet I get it. It's so hard. So you just feel like, oh, my parents are so naive. They don't actually want my best interests. They're so dull. They're so not up on time. I get it. I've heard it before. But Solomon doesn't really make qualifiers here. Did you notice? I I think it's interesting that the fifth commandment and what Paul brings up here is that this commandment has a promise attached to it. it That it would go well with you. That life generally goes better when you operate within the sphere of honoring your mom and dad. That doesn't mean you have to agree with everything. You can disagree well. But to live a life that's just really constantly fighting against their authority. Do you think that that's going to go well for you? And I mean just even just from a relational standpoint. Do you think that that's really going to be of great benefit to your own well-being or to your parents? I don't think so. Notice this doesn't classify either Christian parent from non-Christian parent. I don't see Paul or uh, Solomon putting those qual- qualifiers in place. Again, it's different if they're asking you specifically to sin, but if it's an issue of just wisdom and operating in life, generally it goes better for you to live and operate within the sphere of obedience and honoring rather than live in constant rebellion to that. So, do not forsake the wisdom of honoring your parents. Secondly, bad company corrupts good morals. And if that sounds familiar to you, that's because it's straight from the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. We've learned about that this morning, right? The deception of uh, peer pressure. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Verse is simple enough in its writing, yet hard enough in its application. The people you hang around with will either have a refining or a corrupting effect on your life. They're either going to make you better and stronger as a follower of God, or they're going to have a more corrupting influence on you. It goes beyond friends, the company that you keep online, the company that you find through entertainment and movies and music and television, the company that you seek through romantic relationships. We could go on and on about the different types of company that you can seek out in life, but that company is either going to have a refining effect or a corrupting effect on your life. That word for ruin or corrupt there, it's the same type of word that we would use in our culture to describe rust, right? So we live in the Midwest, and naturally we have something that happened to our cars that other parts of the country don't deal with called rust. And over time, that rust may start as a very small spot. We have it uh, right now on a part of our pool wall that will eventually have to be replaced. Uh, But it starts out really small, but over time, what's that rust going to do? 
it's going to spread and it's going to eat away. And it's going to completely create a very imbalanced structure that will eventually fall apart. Do not allow that to happen because of the company that you choose to keep, especially in this season of your life. Third, talked about this already, but sin only traps and enslaves those who seek to control it. Verses 17 and 18, sin is set forth as the source of fun and freedom when in reality it does the exact opposite. It has seen more, uh, I've seen my share of students and adults over the years who thought that they could just manage their sin rather than put it to death. When it came down to the choice to honor God or to pursue their sin, too often sin was the one that won out. It is a lie and deception of the worst kind to think that you can just control your sin and manage it. To think that you somehow are strong enough to be able to be a master over your sin. Student, sin is not something to be managed. Sin is not something that you can just seek to control and tame like you do your pet in your house. Sin is something that needs to be hunted and to be killed. Just like John Owen said, you need to kill your sin or sin will be killing you. It's one way or the other. And as such, listen to this. Your best friends are not the ones who lead you into sin. Your best friends are not the ones who are telling you to stop listening to what your parents are saying. Your best friends are not the ones who help you manage your sin or further advocate for your sinful choices. But rather, your best friends are the ones who tell you the most truth. And that's a principle you've probably heard me say over and over throughout the years. Some of you graduating seniors are probably sick of hearing me say it by this point, and that's okay. It's something we could spend our whole time with this morning, but we'll probably do so in a future morning when we get to some of the topical parts of Proverbs. But think about this in contrast to some of the other parts of the book of Proverbs. Contrast what a true friend is. Proverbs 27, 6. The wounds from a friend can be trusted, but the enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, enemy is going to tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to hear. A friend is going to be the one who truly tells you what you need to hear, even if it hurts. Even if it hurts. You hear that? Sometimes being a friend means you actually have to wound them. Because God's word is going to bring conviction where necessary. That's okay. But that's actually what being a good friend is when you speak the truth in love to them. Proverbs 27.9, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. A good friend brings forth earnest and true counsel from God's word. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Guess what? Your true friends are the ones who are going to stick with you thick and thin. The ones who are going to be with you when life gets hard, and that even includes when you're struggling in sin, they're going to be there to battle it with you. Your best friends are the ones who tell you the most truth. Please memorize that. Please commit that to memory. That's what makes somebody a true and good friend. And then finally this morning, if that's the case, then man, what a friend we have in Jesus. 
Jesus is a lot of things to us according to the Bible. We can go on and on with the list. He's our Lord. He's our Master. He's our King. He's our Christ. He's our King. He's our Redeemer. He's our God. He's all those things. But the Bible says that He is also our friend. He says to His disciples on the night before His crucifixion, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down His life for His friends. If your best friend is the one who tells you the most truth, and what kind of friend is Jesus, who himself is the author of truth? What better friend to follow than the one who has told us that he is the way, the truth, and the life? The one who loved you so much that he was willing to die on a cross for you, to bring you into his family, so you not just have a familial relationship, but that he can also call you his friend. His counsel will not bring destruction to your life, student, but everlasting life to all who follow him. So we can say this morning, in the midst of all the, the hard and all the peer pressure and all those who tempt us to go towards sin, we can be reminded of what a friend we actually have in Jesus himself. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, just the beautiful reminder of what biblical and godly friendship looks like. I do pray that this morning you have brought some conviction where necessary into the hearts of our students, that you would, Lord, help them if they're battling right now the desire to be accepted, the desire to please uh, those around them who especially are trying to bring them into a way that they know, Lord, is not glorifying to you, that you would bring the courage and the conviction where necessary to cut off those relationships and help them, Lord, to pursue you and pursue what it looks like to be a real godly friend to other people. Uh, this, this has so much application. There are so many different elements that we could just spend a lot of time on this morning. But I pray that your spirit would work now through the hearts of these kids uh, to bring about the necessary change that they need right now so that, Lord, they can live lives of godly wisdom that would be most glorifying and honoring to you. Would you be pleased to do that today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.